0: Now, listening to the Oxford Quadrangle and initiative of the Oxford Hub of the World Economic Forum Global Shapers. So, Richard, tell us who are we speaking to today?
1: On today's episode, Mo, we speak with Anna Petherick. Anna is a principal investigator of the Oxford COVID 19 Government Response Tracker. She lectures at the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University on core graduate politics courses and Before she became an academic, she had a monthly column on The Guardian US's website and contributed regularly to foreign policy, The Lancet, and to Nature Climate Change. Interestingly, she also worked full-time for The Economist and edited a section of the science journal Nature, so a very well-experienced and well-rounded woman. Today, she walks us through the work she and her team at the Oxford University's Blavatnik School of Government are doing with the Government Response Tracker. Let's dive in.
0: Yeah, let's do that.
1: Thank you very much for joining us today, Anna. So as I mentioned, for those of you who may not know, Anna is one of the co-principal investigators of something called the Oxford COVID-19 Government Response Tracker, which since the outbreak of the pandemic has been recording and analyzing how governments around the world have been enacting policies to fight the pandemic. So firstly, Anna, I thought I'd ask, what was the motivation behind this? Kind of whose idea was it? And how did you personally get involved in this? Sure, so I'm gonna take you back
2: to March 2020 to answer that question. Um, So I should say the tracker is run by myself and the co-principal investigator and Tom Hale is the principal investigator. And the two of us, Knew each other beforehand because we were both lecturers on the core politics course here at the Blavatnik School for the graduate students. And um, that course is very policy oriented. It's called uh, POP, um, Politics of Policymaking. And I do all the comparative government stuff, so the inside country stuff. And Tom does the international relations stuff, the between country stuff. and. We were getting towards the end of term uh, in March 2020. And our last week of term is, well, for the years I've been involved in the course, heads towards uh, a sort of mini simulation of the Greek debt crisis. And in 2020, this just felt pretty misplaced. Um, (laughs) Trying to get students to focus on negotiating um, and oh, no, negotiating between the EU big banks and the Greek governments uh, practically a decade before just wasn't what was in their heads. At that point, um, COVID had gone pretty wild in Italy, in Iran, in China, there was already a big lockdown in Italy as well. And um, my students, I remember, were coming up with various um, uh, anecdotes that were really interesting about what was kind of going on in their country, and we just got to a point, I think, where we abandoned what we were supposed to be teaching and had more of a discussion about where the world was and what our individual and community roles could be in trying to solve that problem. And that problem as we conceptualized it at the time wasn't anything as big as the problem that then emerged, right? There was a sense with each day that passed that we were heading towards a cliff edge that this could become global, but it wasn't for sure, right, back in the first few days of March. Anyway, so I remember going home and we all had the weekend after term to sort of catch up on some sleep and if the students think they're tired after term, the lecturers are exhausted. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that right now. And yeah, pretty much Monday morning, Tom called me and uh, he'd been thinking about it all weekends. He'd come up with the simplest way of thinking about how to record data. And his, uh, his spouse had been thinking about how you would actually do it. At that point, we were using just spreadsheets emailed between us. Um, but I have to say when it started, initially my instincts were yes I think this is great a really good distraction for students who don't know what's going on with their exams you've got to give them some community feel but at that point it could have been like a two-week cute project or it could have been the thing it became and we didn't know so that was what it was like at the start
1: okay brilliant thanks that's that's really interesting that it was almost student-led you know kind of thinking of what's most relevant for the students at this time and as you say it morphed into something that's considerably larger than kind of a weekend project um, and you know i've i've been on the kind of the COVID tracker quite a few times and find it immensely valuable in kind of particularly in cross-country comparative responses um, and you report information on multiple aspects of policy responses you know i've written down just a few including length of school closures, COVID testing regimes, emergency investments and most recently kind of including vaccinations as well. Um, and I mean, this is a huge data undertaking. So I was wondering, you know, you mentioned that it, it started initially as kind of Excel spreadsheets um, going between you. So how do you actually go about collecting this data? Has it morphed into something I hope more sophisticated than emailing spreadsheets back and forth? Um, And then, secondly, do you aggregate this data at all so that it's easier for interested users to digest? um, Yeah, kind of, you know, aggregation of similar indices or similar uh, indicators or something like that.
2: Yes, it has become more nuanced and and more complex for sure. So, I guess to pick up the story where I left off with these Excel spreadsheets and what was at the beginning a very simple coding system. so originally, the coding system had to be designed semi-blind. We didn't really know what the rest of the world was going to do. We had a bit of an instinct from Italy in particular and, and, and China and Iran. So we started off with just the main closure policies, so the different areas of policymaking, schools, public transport. And we just had, if you like, no government interventions, government recommendations as a stronger policy, and government requirements to close schools or whatever it was as the higher level those days are well 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 behind us now and pretty quick so i should say two weeks into that um, uh, that some that easter holidays when we were starting the project it had reached a scale where you know we were getting requests from for data for briefing the un secretary general from this cute thing that we were discussing in seminars, it blew up, right. And that was at the point when it was becoming clearer that this was a, a pandemic. Um, um, and so there are a number of stages when I think back to how the, the coding system emerged. And the first thing we did was we took advantage of the, uh, the summer exams, which in the Blavatnik school happen in the end of April. To, to grab a moment when we were going to add complexity to the coding system um, because at that point it was clear that we needed to do more. We added in a whole series of health indicators to do with government information campaigns and contact, tra- uh, contact tracing and testing and so on. And then since then it has grown and grown and grown and really our data structure is something that we continually reflect on. We have meetings regularly to talk about the code book, the interpretation guide. We now have, I think it's 23 different policy domains that we collect data on. Um, the latest ones, as you mentioned, have been vaccinations. So vaccine mandates have been really um, a hot topic. And to make things practically doubly complicated for our, our volunteer community, we have started coding a lot of these policies as separate policy strengths for vaccinated people in society and unvaccinated people, which towards the end of 2021 became quite common in many countries in the world and very important to understanding, if you like, the strength of policy overall in a country. Of course, that then uh, makes us reflect on the second part of your question, which is how we gather this data together and the indices. Um, So we are, I guess, well known for our first index, which is the stringency index that's been used by a lot of policymakers and a lot of papers. Actually, almost since the beginning, now I think about it, since very early on, we've put out four different indices, but the stringency one was the first one, and so it's become a bit of a sort of a... A problem with like a one hit wonder if you're a pop star, you kind of, sometimes I want to say to people, actually this other index would be closer to what you're trying to do. Um, But I think it has a lot of value, the the stringency index nonetheless, because it captures the policies that governments can put together quickly, essentially the closure policies. Now, the reason why I say that the differentiated coding for the vaccinated and unvaccinated has made us come back to this question of how do we do our indices is because you then say well how do you weight the strength of policy if you have different policies for schooling say or for transport for some people and not a different one for others and uh, this is yet to launch but we're going to actually do it in different ways probably our primary index will be an average of the two And the reason for that is it's hard to get reliable day-to-day updated data for every country in the world, for every subnational jurisdiction that we code, and we do 81 in Brazil to give you an example of how big that effort is, Um, to to have the proportion of people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, because the sensible way of doing it would be to weight the index for each policy domain by how many people in society are sort of subject to that degree of closure but we rely on other people to tell us how many people are vaccinated in each country.
1: That's that's very interesting and and it's really interesting to hear kind of the complex discussions that go behind the creation of what to to someone who's just going on the site would be a simple indice you know kind of a, a one number per country or per jurisdiction but there's a lot of thought that goes behind it into how do we actually construct this to best represent the data. Um, I didn't actually realize that you did such detailed disaggregation at sub-national levels, uh, as opposed to just looking at policies at the national level. Um, where do you collect this data from? I mean, I presume, as you said, you rely on you know, external sources of data, but you've got to somehow collate it all into your system. Um, are you you know, hiring people, or are you manually going out and and scraping all this data? Or are people feeding it into you? Or how does this kind of feedback loop of data work?
2: So the most amazing thing about this project to me is that it is entirely run off Goodwill. Um, For the first four months, our budget was zero pounds. Um, um, So the reason it was possible actually was frankly because my students are awesome. Um, They had exams coming up and to give you a bit more of an insight into the School of Government here, um, it's it's a really unique place because I think this year we have about 140 grad students, but typically they're from about 60 countries, 60, 70 countries. And so if you run a seminar, literally, I've had the finance minister of Ethiopia and the housing minister of Paraguay among six people in the same seminar. It's rare you get two people from the same country. And this means that uh, just among our students, we could code, I think, in something like 88 languages. So we our community covered essentially all of the official government languages of the world. And not many small communities can say that. So in some ways, we had, we had the, um, the intellectual resources to be able to read government rulings around the world. But also what's special about this community is when we um, bring in students or when we accept them here, we look at their academic credentials, but we also score them for, their, um, for what they've done to promote the public good around the world, um, for essentially, essentially a sense of get up and go. And that meant that we also kind of had this intangible sense of vocation to draw upon. People willing to um, take a hit in their exams to do this when it was necessary for the world. And that's what got us going. We wouldn't have been able to get off the ground properly without that. And then over time, more and more people have joined who've been obviously beyond this graduate community. We've now had over a thousand volunteers come through. This would be impossible to web scrape. Um, you have to look at so many different government websites, different forms of official data. And then often we have to check this data against good, reliable media sources. Um, there's a lot of work that goes in. And I think if you try to web scrape it, you probably spend longer trying to do that. And if you just Gathered a thousand people and asked them to read everything. Um, and then what they do is they input it into an online database, um, which uh, is linked to our GitHub. And essentially via an API, it is possible for one of my former students, uh, Paula, sitting in Lima, to input the coding for Peru. And in literally seconds, it will be on the FT's website, updating their charts in various WHO models around the pandemic. And it's an extraordinary automatic system. It also means that when it goes wrong, we are firefighting whatever time of day it is to fix it. <laughs> but um, but it's amazing how it's all come together.
1: Well, wow, that really is incredible. I had no idea that it was so volunteer-driven and that so many people who, you know, I guess, don't get acknowledged um, for the work are going out their way in order to try and help make this viable public good. Um, And I guess with any public good, we want, it's the same with, um, you know, any kind of data collection or anything. You want it to be used and you want it to kind of inform future decisions. And one of my questions was actually, how has the data been used and, and has it been used? But I guess along the way, you've already discussed you know, it's being input into models kind of real time. It's been used to inform WHO reports or, you know, I think you said the UN initial report. So it's clearly out there and it's clearly being valued and used by many people.
2: Yes. Um, it, I mean, there are, there are so many answers to this question. that I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, if you just look, um, so we eventually put together um, a, a research paper in Nature Human Behaviour to announce the data set. But even before then, I think we were close to a thousand citations of our original working paper. Um, and that's, you know, this is not fundamentally a research project. It is a data product for the public good. Um, but if we were to try and count research, we know, I think we're into the 3000 or something citations and that isn't its biggest impact. Um, Tom and I uh, have regularly been on calls with the British Cabinet Office um, to sort of inform them in calls with academics largely about what's going on in policies around the world. Um, Countless behind the scenes advice calls, um, late at night, early in the morning, all sorts. And then just the grey literature is huge. And um, it's been extraordinary. It really has been extraordinary. And I think the biggest contribution, which is um, probably pretty invisible, it's none of the stuff that I have mentioned so far. And that is that I think certainly in, um, for much of the pandemic, what it has done is it's pushed the conversation on beyond a fight about the facts of what is going on in the world. Um, If we think about the early days of the pandemic, particularly when Trump was um, saying an awful lot of anti-China rhetoric, um, I think what's been helpful is this data set has quite invisibly made the conversation become one about what works, rather than what is happening. Um, and not many people even noticed that fact, but I actually think we didn't notice our biggest contribution and that was probably it.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really true. And it's, it is quite incredible. If, I mean, it must be for you now as well, if you take a step back and you know, it, it started from such humble beginnings, as you said, um, to now an incredible project that accumulates so much data. Um, Yeah, and allows you really to do brilliant, real-time, quick cross-country or cross-subnational comparisons. Uh, And I really haven't seen any other tools out there that that give you such quick and real-time data. I don't know if you're able to answer this one, but this is just a personal question, whether at any, you know, I mean, you have so much information going on, but have you seen any standout policy responses uh, that have caught your eye as being innovative or unusual, um, or are you just looking at too much data at once to kind of notice any individual responses?
2: There is a bit of a white noise issue. I'm not going to pretend <laughs> there isn't, but I think one of the one of the salient points that has come through more and more clearly over the course of the pandemic is that the behavioural logic. Of how people respond to these um, policies is really important. And when I've had time to do some research with this data, those are the the kinds of questions that I have been focused on. Um, And there are a few examples of well-framed policies that I think are worth highlighting. So, one of them was done in Italy. And what it really showed was how goal-oriented behavior is really important. Um, so this is a study that looked at different parts of Italy and some of Italy in lockdown had a, essentially a message just saying, rather like the UK policy, we're in lockdown, kind of keep going, um, just keep behaving as per lockdown and we'll update you at some point. And another part said, okay, here's the target for what we've got to achieve in lockdown. It's going to be this case rate, or it's going to be, you know, we're going to do it for this many days. And then the researchers actually monitored compliance in these different parts of Italy. And they showed that in the second part I described where there's a clear target for the population, people complied much better. And you don't need to be a behavioural economists to have much insight into this. If you ever have, have a personal trainer and they tell you to just keep doing press ups and I'll update you when I want you to stop, you're not particularly motivated compared to, it's like, okay, eight, good luck, we're gonna count you down. It's very different, right? So I think there's a lot of behavioural science that has started to shine through and as we should have been taking far more seriously from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, that's really true. Thanks. It's very interesting. Um, Part of that, I guess, just a personal anecdote is I'm from Cape Town back in South Africa. And when during our first kind of strict hard lockdown, the government completely banned alcohol um, sales completely. And initially people were infuriated, you know, uh, because particularly you had to stay at home but we drastically saw the number of incidences in our trauma units and our emergency units fall um, due to just, you know, reductions in the number of violent incidents or drunk driving and that kind of stuff. So it really did open up hospital capacity in a time when we needed it. And once people realized this, there was a cognitive shift amongst kind of the majority of people of the citizens and we started to actually gain this trust and respect about the government's decision-making. Um, and again, that it's very difficult to, to tangibly tell you know, what happened there, but the behavioural understandings and the trust between citizens and governments has been something that's been very interesting throughout the pandemic.
2: Yeah, if I could actually pick up on that, because one, um, one of my main research projects came to that conclusion, and we weren't necessarily setting up to test it originally, Um, we looked at how compliance was varying um, with these these difficult, costly, um, sort of stay-at-home types of um, protective behaviours, how it was varying in different countries over time. And we tried to, we looked at different regions of the world, we looked at different income levels, and then eventually we divided the world into countries with above the median levels of trust in government and below the median. Curiously, we didn't see any different pattern for the countries with high or low trust in government. They stuck with these difficult behaviors equally. But when we divided it into countries above the median level of trust in strangers and below the median, then we saw dramatic differences. The trends were completely different. countries with high trust in strangers kept up the compliance much, much better than low trust in strangers. And to briefly be a little bit of a political science nerd, this fits beautifully with what collective action theory would expect. So to make that simple, essentially, why would you contribute pay a high individual cost towards the public good of a lower infection rate if you don't think that other people you don't know are also sitting in their homes and not seeing their friends and stuff, it's only worth you making that investment if you believe that. Because if you make that investment and you don't believe that, you're not going to get public good of a lower infection rate, anyhow. But it's amazing to see that in great big graphs of the whole world play out so dramatically.
1: Yeah, that's that's very interesting and really interesting to hear that it's played out in the data as well. As you said, it's something that's quite easy to theorize, but very interesting that it's actually being shown and that you've researched this and we're seeing it. Um, So perhaps we've (laughs) digressed a little from the COVID-19 tracker itself, but I think it's all relevant in the discussion about policies and what works and what doesn't. And um, thanks very much for that. I think just for anyone in our audience who's interested in life at Oxford and, and Oxford more broadly, Um, I thought I would focus our last two questions just more on your personal time here. Um, If I understand it correctly, you did both your MPhil and your DPhil or your PhD here at Oxford. Um, And I really, I guess, what was your first impression of the city? Um, Was it, you know, kind of a sense of, oh, wow, I'm here at Oxford. You know, I don't belong here, um, as I think a lot of people here have imposter syndrome when they first come, certainly. And how would, what would you recommend to anyone who's interested in applying here, but feels like it's out of their reach?
2: So, um, I am a bit unusual in that I grew up near Glastonbury, famous for the Glastonbury Music Festival. And it was very normal among my friends for everybody to live into houses that were more than 800 years old and the city I grew up in has the oldest inhabited streets in Europe. So I'm probably one of the few people who's ever come here and thought it was all a bit modern looking. Um, <laughs> um, so I say that sort of as a joke of it. Um, in all seriousness, and I have, I think a different perspective now that I'm a lecturer compared to being an intimidated student. It's very much the people who don't think they should be here, who absolutely have the right to be here on merits, And it's the few people who think that they were born to be here that I raise an eyebrow about their actual abilities when they get here <laughs> as a broad trend. So if someone is listening to this and doubting themselves, they should not, they should have a go, definitely. Um, and, you know, there's a place for all sorts of people here. I think that's something that people don't understand. I think one day I'm gonna get a Harry Potter broomstick for my office just so I meet expectations, I think. But, you know, my students are every kind of person. I've mentioned ministers, but also I've had just awesome, you know, primary school teachers um, who are as bright as the ministers and as valuable to the world as them and you it everybody is special in different ways and i think a lot of people who should be here or should be applying don't because they think it's something that it's not and it's not in practice when you're actually here hugely intimidating it's very supportive and it's not like harry potter
1: yeah (laughs) no there are quirky things here um just two weeks ago i played Fives. Game for the first time, which sounds awfully posh, but that's something that doesn't happen outside the UK, from what I understand. But in general, I completely agree with you. um, In that, I think a lot of people who completely deserve to be here don't apply because they're intimidated, and that's one thing we're trying to push a bit more in this: is for people to understand that Oxford isn't this revered, hallowed place which is untouchable. You know it's it's exactly as you said it's the people who are the most humble who are often the most brilliant um and then so my last question i guess is given that you've been here for a while have there been any standout favorite memories of your time at oxford i mean this can be really anything you think of that's happened at the city or during your time here
2: um so i was having a think about this question and what comes to mind is all kinds of beautiful summer evenings on Port Meadow which for people listening is this area sort of almost in the city by the river which is quite wild and there's horses and all sorts semi-wild and I often take my stand-up paddle boards and a cheeky cider and just sort of bob along there in the summer but the other thing that actually came to mind was uh, the first time I came back to give a lecture after COVID restrictions were first lifted. And it was fresh as week, I think. And for social distancing, we had to do it. I actually did it in a bar and there was a (laughs) disco ball above my head. Just, we hired out pretty much anywhere in this part of town that could hold our students, including a church, all sorts. And it was the first time I actually stood up in person, I think, to talk about the tracker and talk about what would have been the previous year's students to those coming in, and I got really emotional. I think at no point had I actually stopped to reflect on just the scale of the human energy and the also the individual agency that's being part of this pro social community, doing something that mattered when so much control was taken away from everyone, how important that was to um, my own mental health and that of, of everyone I was in touch with um, during those crazy days at the beginning of the tracker. But that's the other thing, under a, under a disco ball, um, almost crying in front of my new students.
1: Brilliant, <laughs> thank you, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that was a memorable time for you and also for the students. Um, Yeah. I mean, I know the word unprecedented gets thrown around too much these days, but I think that truly is an unprecedented experience for both you and for them and something that you'll never forget. So, Anna, I think that that's the end of all the questions I have for you. Um, But I really want to thank you so much for your time um, and for opening up about the COVID tracker itself, more broadly the work you do, and just life at Oxford in general.
0: Thank you so much, I really appreciate it, and we know how busy you are, and um, this was actually really good because you brought a lot of human face to what was, I think for a lot of us, just something you go and you look at data numbers in, so thank you.
2: Well, it's my pleasure, and I should just say that thanks really goes to all the volunteers who are still almost two years in are putting in you know six eight hours a week yeah yeah it's amazing
0: incredible
2: yeah it incredible.
1: yeah i had no idea about that and that truly is one of the incredible aspects i think of what you've built in the community you've built yeah so mo how did you find that talk with
0: anna I really enjoyed that actually. She gave a good overview of what is now one of Oxford's signature projects, how they started it, what was the motivation for the tracker and how work on the tracker began and how it moved from simple spreadsheets into you know, a really complex project that did not actually have the source code um, online. So for me, it, Brought back to mind how we all sort of came together um, during the pandemic and the importance of people power and sort of like crowdsourcing again.
1: Yeah, completely. Um, I mean, as I said in the episode, I had no idea that the tracker was so kind of collective action-based, you know, that it was so run by volunteers and relied on really people taking their own time to contribute to this public good, which was fantastic to hear. And as you said, it really, it really highlighted the importance of diversity in, in major projects like this, you know, with, without the kind of range of different countries that the students came from and that volunteers still, you know, come from, the tracker wouldn't have happened. It just wouldn't be possible to collate this amount of information. So I think all in all, it was a really great episode, uh, incredibly interesting for me, and we both, I think, really enjoyed speaking to Anna. So, Thank you again, Anna, for being on the podcast and we look forward to the next one. Yep. Thank you. All right. Bye guys.